Report podcast, where we mix our love of the NBA with statistical analysis. We're going to be looking at teams and players through a different lens. And as the season continues, we're going to be building a statistical model that's going to help us show which teams, which players are going to excel and who's going to fail. With that, one of the things that we love to talk about here at the Ballistics Report podcast is about NBA innovations and how they've changed the game from the inception of the NBA and ABA to now. With that, I'm going to hand it over to Eric, and he's going to talk about uh, all the different innovations that have made the sport that we love what it is today. Hey, what's up, sports fans? I'm joining you in from uh, New York hotel bathroom right now, so apologies if my voice sounds a little bit weird. Because uh, you're it is the mecca of basketball. I'm dedicated. I'm dedicated to this podcast, man, and I'm dedicated to watch the Knicks tank year after year after year <laughs> and not get free agents. Katie I'm was sorry right. If you're a Knicks fan. Yeah, Katie's right. <laughs> um, yeah, I, oh, we did some research into changes throughout the years of uh, NBA, ABA rules, and it's actually super, super fascinating. Uh, I think what we're going to start with is I'm just going to run through, kind of bucket the decades into notable changes. And we're going to talk about a couple of those changes and how they were really significant to the NBA. So one thing that really surprised me was in 1946, they banned the zone defense. So the zone defense actually didn't come back until 50 years later in 2001. Uh, The 50s and 60s were dominated by big men like George Mikan and Wilt Chamberlain. So the lane actually widened from six feet out to 16 feet uh, after George Mikan and, and Wilt Chamberlain. The 70s were dominated by fighting. We knew about the 70s. We knew there was a lot of fights. There was a lot of heat. The NBA was really picking up. People were starting to get fanatic about the NBA. And so the NBA was really trying to control the players, prevent them from fighting, from roughing each other up. And fines increased from $50 to $100 for a player or a coach that was ejected after being charged with a technical foul for unsportsmanlike conduct in 74, the 74 season, which is wild to think about today with the crazy fines that our players get, like Ron Artest being, you know, uh, losing a whole season um, for, for punching a fan, which obviously justified, but uh, it, this was really, really significant in the 70s. In 78-79, there's a really interesting rule for clarific- clarifying the prohibiting hand-checking. Uh, a lot of people like to talk about hand-checking, and we'll touch upon that in a second. But in 78-79, they clarified hand-checking and said that a, a defensive player could retain contact with his opponent so long as he does not impede his opponent's progress. 78-79 was also very, very notable for a small thing called the three-point shot. That's when the three-point shot was introduced. The 80s were dominated by uh, trying to control the zone defense. I think there were a lot of superstars around the time. There were a lot of big men dominating the paint. They couldn't figure out how to balance man-to-man defense versus zone defense. So they started doing these really wacky rules to figure out how, what an, a quote-unquote illegal defensive scheme was and what was legal, what was not legal, how you could double-team without really double-teaming, things like that. 1990 was one of my favorite rules because it actually affected a really uh, significant playoff game for the Lakers versus the Spurs. It's the first time I learned about this rule, but they call it the Trent Tucker rule because in 1990, I think a 1989 playoff game, the Bulls played the Knicks and Trent Tucker shot a three-point shot um, with less than 0.3 seconds left on clock. So the next season, they said that there must be at least 0.3 seconds left on the clock in order to shoot a shot. Um, And so that's really significant these days. You see, uh, if you have any 
time less than 3.3 seconds, you have to tip it in um, or you just can't make a shot. 2000-2001 is when the zone uh, and hand checking rules were modified. They took away the zone. They added uh, three seconds in the paint defensively, and they modified a lot of those hand checking rules that we hear a lot about today. But we're going to talk about it in a second, but the zone versus hand checking controversy is actually super, super deep. 2002 is when they started exploring with instant replay, and that went on for a lot of the 2000s, modifying instant replay, making instant replay more significant, and it's kind of evolved into the shape that we have today. Uh, 2004, 2005, I think, is the most significant part of, of opening up with the offensive game because new rules were introduced to curtail hand checking, clarifying blocking rules, calling defensive three seconds, and essentially just a lot of people argue that today you can't touch another offensive player without getting a foul called. And that was actually due to a lot of the rule changes in 2004. 2012 is one of my favorite rules, anti-flopping rule. They tied in a whole bunch of things with like the Reggie Miller rule, which is you can't kick out to initiate contact on a shot. Um, the worst thing about this rule is it's applied inconsistently. And I don't think anyone aside from Marcus Smart was ever fined for this rule. So they really need to step it up. They introduced this rule at this point seven years ago, and they really, really need to step it up because I see some ridiculous things in the NBA. 2013-2015, it was a finals format change, uh, playoff seed changes, which we'll also talk about why those are significant. And then obviously in, our, in the latest seasons, we had the 14-second um, shot clock rule where if you got a, a defensive or offensive rebound, you would only get 14 seconds left on the clock. So that's just like a quick summary of all the changes that were made in the NBA in the past um, 50, 60 years of the NBA. Uh, Josh, what, are you, what do you think are some of the most significant rules that really shaped the, the world of the NBA as, it, as you see it today? I mean, the thing is that, well, first of all, I want to talk about how surprising. I didn't even know that zone defense was banned in 1946. I didn't realize just how prevalent it was back then. I, yeah. I, I always thought it was uh, a man-to-man defense up until like the 80s where they started introducing some zone defenses. So that's kind of cool to know that they were like, oh, this would ruin the pace of play if we did zone defense. Um, I, and, and just even picking back off of that in that early uh, early part of the decade or of the NBA, like George Mikan and Will Chamberlain, their, their style of play made it so important to widen the lane because of just how much they probably camped there and dominated down there. So – it it's cool that the NBA like I, it's interesting because the NBA was willing to be innovative like from the get go. They realized they they saw areas of improvement or areas that they can improve and they just did it. Yeah, and actually speaking of big men, it wasn't until Shaq came onto the scene that the NBA really decided to go full for um, banning the zone defense or uh, unbanning the zone defense, because that guy was just so dominant under the basket. No matter what you threw at him, he had such a wide array of skills. You push him out two to four feet, um, you, you, he would just bully his way in. None of those three-second things mattered. None of, like, the, they could have widened the lane another 20 feet, and I'm sure he could have dominated. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Just to, I mean, just imagine Shaquille O'Neal in the 80s, like in the mid-84, 85 against all those centers because like no one was like a scoring setter center or def- really 
incredible defensive center other than like Kareem and Moses Malone. And I don't even think Moses Malone could handle Shaquille O'Neal. Yeah, he easily could have scored 150. Oh, yeah. But I think he was a little too lazy. You know, I heard someone say something about him being too lazy. I don't know. I I think he wasn't lazy enough because the Mavericks could have won a few more championships if, if that was the case. Yeah, he should have been a little bit more lazy against the yeah. Mavs for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. But I, I think the other parts that I uh, – obviously, I, we have to talk about the three-point shot being introduced in 78-79. And um, obviously, that opened up a new dimension to the NBA because – um, I, I remember reading about this when we were doing research that legitimately the reason why the three-point line was introduced, and fun fact, it was introduced by George Mikan in the, in the ABA. He oh, said wow. that he wanted uh, more perimeter players to be more involved in, in the NBA and gave him more chances to score um, if there was a three-point line uh, introduced. And then when the ABA folded, Three years after it folded, the NBA decided to take it on uh, from prodding of people, well, the fans of the ABA that said that they should bring in the NBA. Um, so obviously we wouldn't have today's NBA if it wasn't for the introduction of the three-point line. I mean, it's changed how the game is played, how young players, like it, it doesn't matter if you're five foot seven. Um there are going to be players that are that tiny that are able to affect the game. Um, yeah. If you, if you look at the three point shot coupled with the end of zone uh, of unbanning the zone defense, mm-hmm. that is essentially why we have three, three D players today, three and D players today, because they're just incredibly smart players that can defend multiple positions, can mm-hmm. cut off passing lanes and also shoot the three pointer shots. So they're not a liability on offense. It's like the prototype is basically formed from from this time period. Oh yeah, I, I mean, if if you if you think about it, um, every NBA player has to be pretty well rounded now. Even if they're not incredible at offense or incredible at defense, if they're well rounded, they're gonna be they're gonna find minutes, right? Like uh, because they want someone that can be versatile defending and and make some shots. They don't have to dribble necessarily. They don't need to uh, put up like 20 points or be incredible at the mid range. But if they can knock down a shot and be decent on the defensive end, you're going to find, you're going to find a team and you're going to probably be paid decently. Well, I mean, there was that time in 2016 where like Kent Bazemore, Alan Crabb, um, I'm blanking on the rest of their names, but it's just so many three and D guys. Oh, uh, well, even though Chandler Parsons wasn't good at D, uh, um, he got that that huge contract as well. Yeah, being able to be just versatile enough, so it's like, yeah, it it's because of the three point line, the zone needing tall or uh, decent players that are, that have length uh, that will get you paid. Yeah, one of the one of the group of players that really hated unbanning the zone were the superstars. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michael Jordan really hated it, even though it wasn't during his time, but he just hated the idea of unbanning the zone. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Tim Duncan, Tracy McGrady all spoke up against it because they were saying, hey, it's like a man's league. Like you got to man up on me. You got to be one on one. But I also think 
that this changed the way that they thought of the game because they couldn't just dominate the game and mm-hmm. be the only person scoring. They needed teammates around them that they could trust and score. And I think that mentality took a really big shift to say, this is a really uh, big team game now. It's not that I can score 50 and win us a game. It's if I start going for 20, 30, they're going to collapse on me on D and I got to pass it to someone who can make mm-hmm. a shot. The prototypical three and D guy, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I Let's be honest here. If that rule wasn't instated for the zone defense, like the Warriors wouldn't have been a dynasty. Uh, that's clear and that's the most honest I can be. It's just they wouldn't have the players necessary to roll in the 90s and the 2000s because um, with the zone, essentially, I mean, they're the ultimate zone busters. Like they're, yeah. they're great three-point shooters. They have switchblades or, or sorry, Butterfly, oh, what am I trying to say? <laughs> you know, they, they have the utility knife, right? They're, they're, yeah. they're always prepared. The man belt. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The utility belt. They, they have so many tricks, uh, but they, they're not, they weren't so overwhelming in like actual talent. Like these players would be really, really good. And I still think Steph Curry would have been a star in the 90s. And I think Clay Thompson would have been really good. But like, Draymond would have been like a poor man's Rodman in the nineties. Like yeah. Andre Iguodala would probably be, uh, you know, maybe like a BJ Armstrong level or, uh, you know, someone that's good, but Ron not, Harper. Yeah. Ron, Ron Harper. Defense like, and like really good role player. Yeah. But exactly. Not, yeah. But the, these players all fit into today's NBA and it's because of that rule change where it's like no hand checking, which obviously goes, uh, the advantage goes to the offensive player. And then zone defense, it's the people that are fast and good shooters that are going to exploit that. Yeah, yeah. Actually, one thing I want to get into is the flopping rules. I think the flopping rules are fascinating because I you could distinctly feel that the NBA was becoming Oscar worthy in the way that people were flopping. And you can watch highlights and compilations of this and it was really interesting when the league decided hey we're going to adopt these soccer rules essentially Mm -hmm. of punishing flopping but then it was weird because they didn't do anything about it and today you see the the most flopping like you see people living on the free throw line just completely embellishing every little hit they get and Mm -hmm. i get it though right like if you're playing basketball and you got a ref Someone slaps you on the arm. You can't call your own fouls. You got to embellish a little bit. But some mm-hmm. of this is ridiculous. And I'm wondering, what like when is the league going to really start cracking down on the flopping rules that they implemented in 2012? And is that the next revolution of change for for the NBA? Does that really change the landscape when people are getting punished for embellishing? Yeah, I. Here's my thing with the flopping rule. It's, it was a little too late um, because they should have had years and years of data by that point um, to be able to figure out. Because you have instant replay. You have the ability to look at, a you know, when you suspect something of being flopping, you should be able to, uh, you know, go back and, and make sure that it was. Um, and then if it's punitive, even if, it's, even if it doesn't get reversed, like okay yeah the the uh um you know the the foul still went through just the fact that they're stopping and looking people are going to be more wary 
you know, people are going to be, I, or the players are going to understand like, okay, I can't do this all the time to right. just get a foul. Yeah. And, and I, I don't even think you need to stop the pace of play. I, I think just reviewing it after the fact, mm-hmm. if you see plenty of people embellishing when they just didn't get touch, I'm just calling for the ones that like, really, they just didn't get touched. It just looks ridiculous. I know there's yeah. a lot of, you know, in-betweens, but let's just call the obvious ones and start finding people for it. And yeah. they're going to do it less because they know, hey, if there's zero contact and I'm just trying to sell a play, then I got nothing. If you, if you get some contact and you embellish a little, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of okay with that, right? Like uh, every little bump, every little push does affect the way that you shoot and everything. And I mean, the modern NBA player is so strong that these mm-hmm. little pushes and nudges count for something. But if there's just a complete ghost of a hit, it just complete no contact, you've got to enforce these rules. You've got to find the players or else the NBA is just going to continue down this path. This is going to get super boring. Yeah, I think it's kind of funny that, you know, a lot of this gets attributed to European players. Like they they say that the European players are the ones that brought in flopping from, you know, them being in soccer or them being uh, or always playing like this uh, back in the European leagues. But it's like the best ones are all American players now. <laughs> That's the worst yeah. part about it. It's like it's yeah. James Harden, Chris Paul. Um, yeah. LeBron. I didn't want to say any names, but yes. <laughs> oh. I mean, come on. It's like, I mean, he's literally Mr. Flop. Like, yeah. <laughs> so, and yeah, that, that's the thing. It's, it's, uh, you have to be at least punitive. Like you have to show that um, we're not going to allow this or it's not going to be rewarded um, because yeah, just imagine James Harden getting half the calls that he would, you know? Yeah. I think we would change his game. Yeah, we. I think we would think of him as still a great player, but I don't know if we would think of him as the undisputed best shooting guard. Oh, look, uh, I'm going to be real. Like, if James Harden doesn't get those calls, I think he adapts, and I think he becomes just as good of a player. That's what frustrates me. Yeah. I know James Harden is an offensive weapon. It's not like he puts up all these shots and he doesn't make them. He's still he's still making these crazy and one threes. Right? Yeah, but he's just kind of selling them when they're not actual fouls. This, is, this guy's an incredible player. He doesn't need to rely on this. And it just feels like purely an exploitation of the rules. Yeah. That's what's frustrating to me. Like, I think one of the things that still get me is that people still do the leg kick. You know, it's just that they do it instead of going out, they go, or instead of going in front of them, they go out, right? Like they make it look like it's a very wide shot. uh just so that they can get contact and uh that's the one that annoys me that's that's the one that really gets me. yeah to be fair i think the refs are calling that one a lot less i think they're doing much better on the leg kick um uh one of my favorite players stephen curry gets does the leg kick a lot and i'm not too quite too sure if he's doing it to protect himself because i know he had a lot of ankle issues so he actually lands in kind of a weird manner um but yeah, I do notice that the, the refs are starting to call that one less. So props to the ref for, refs for actually picking that one up. Yeah, and actually to your point, thinking about it, it's true. Some of these players actually do – I'm sure they do that because of that very issue because, you know, there there were a lot of times where your uh, defender lands underneath you 
uh, like Bruce Bowen did that to Vince Carter. I, and I was watching that game live and it was gruesome. Like I felt so bad for Vince Carter that yeah. he, he basically um, um, rolled his ankle because Bruce Bowen went underneath him. Uh, so it's, it's a good point. Like when you have weak ankles, you got to protect them any, any, at, at any cost. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think one really interesting, uh, you have some really interesting perspective about the NBA playoff and finals changes. Uh, I love, I, I really want to get your thoughts on how you think something as simple as changing the finals from a two, three, two to a two, what was it? Two, two, one, one, one. Yeah. Has really changed the shape of the finals. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, I think that one of the best things that they did was actually move from a, uh, as you said, a two, three, two, uh, which totally favored the, the away team or the, the, uh, sorry, when I say the away team, the team that had the three games in the middle, uh, cause that is a lot of, um, that's a lot of, uh, leverage for you to be able to sleep in your own bed, um, be able to practice in your own practice facility. Um, you, you know, you're familiar with the rims, you're familiar with the spot. Like it, it just is better. Like I, I think for a team and, uh, particularly like I, I saw it even in the 2006 Mavericks heat series, um, uh, that the momentum totally swing to Miami because they'd had the three, in in Miami, um, and it, uh, it it I didn't feel like it was conducive for competitive the competitiveness. I felt like teams uh, were uh, were tired, or specifically the traveling team was uh, was kind of tired being in the same city for an entire week. Like I I preferred it, but that being said, uh, we do and we need to eventually have a podcast about this, but because of the because of the more travel because they're they're constantly in new cities there is an epidemic of sleep deprivation yeah i I think that's actually so when people say there's home court advantage it's starting to become clear it's not as much as we want it to be about the fans yeah it's it's not as much about the fans but just the pure need to travel and you just away from your family and your home, uh, not sleeping well. There's a lot of psychological benefits to being in your own home. And that really gives you that home court advantage. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why a lot of teams are now investing in nicer airplanes, private mm-hmm. charters. Um, I think one of the points you made, Josh, actually was before planes, a lot of teams didn't have private planes. They had to fly commercial Mm-hmm. So that two, three, two made more sense in, in order to lower the cost of like traveling back and forth. But now with all these nice planes and these private chartered planes, you can go to that two, two, one, one, one format and it balances out everything for, for people. So oh, um, yeah. I think just as the game changes, this format makes a lot more sense. Absolutely. So yeah, the, pri- the private plane um, revolution, if you will, or just the fact that all these owners now can actually afford that it's given them an ability to travel at any time making sure their team is well or hopefully well rested um you don't have to worry about uh waiting at in in line like people don't understand uh, like magic johnson and larry bird i believe in their first couple of years I, I think later they did get a plane or they they would get charters but in their first couple of years they played 
they they had to take commercial flights to their next game. Um, so just imagine in in an airplane that's probably has a little bit more room than modern air or like modern commercial air flights that we do. Still, you have a six foot nine guy trying to fit into one of those seats or a seven footer trying to fit into one of those seats. They can't sprawl out. They can't like actually enjoy themselves. And, and yeah, I mean, imagine that for a playoff run where you're going across country from LA to Boston. Yeah. I mean, that, that's absolutely crazy. It makes a lot of sense that, that investing in planes, investing in all these things are really helping out the players. Oh, absolutely. And I, I think there's going to be a lot of research that goes into the whole sleep deprivation thing um, where I, I wouldn't be surprised because I know that they already do some things for like healing where they get like bariatric chambers, which helps with uh, having a high barometric pressure that helps with uh, healing, making sure uh, people um, uh, get better faster or they're able to at least start practicing sooner. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if we're going to see some sort of like uh, ways that that athletes will be able to sleep more and have uh, a little bit better rest throughout the year. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, hey. they already did that with the back-to-back, so they're reducing those as much as they can. Yeah. Hey, Josh, quick pop, pop quiz. What do you hate the most about the NBA when you have a losing team? Oh, I hate tanking. I hate oh. it with a passion. You know how stupid it is when Rick Carlisle trots out three guards in the fourth quarter of a tightly contested game yeah. just so that he can get a, a lower draft pick? That's just insane. It's not good for the fans. Nobody wants to watch that, man. Oh, my God. I So, absolutely. That year that we were tanking for Luca, I will say that was the worst. They, they did – analysis on it and he literally put out the worst uh five players or the worst five combination or the combination of five players that he could and it was disgusting like you had yeah those three players i think aminu was on that team if he wasn't i'm sorry um like he would play the four and then you'd have like dwight powell or someone and it was just disgusting and like and because of that, I really think that a new innovation that they should really look into is actually changing how we get the number one draft pick. Um, and uh, with that, this is something that Eric and I have been, you know, kind of brainstorming and throwing around. And uh, we wanted to give you an exclusive here on the Ballistics uh, Report podcast of our first innovation that we believe the NBA should include or start implementing as soon as possible. Um, Eric, do you want to uh, kind of give the background? Yeah, so uh, so we were thinking in a, a way that can not only extend the, the, the season for teams that tank or are losing teams um, because they're not in the playoffs is kind of have a mini playoffs for the number one seed. And so that way teams still stay competitive and they still want to win as much as possible because they can get a higher a ranking and higher seating. And then it becomes like an NCAA tournament style when almost, where almost anyone could have a good game and win. Uh, I think that would be a really, really interesting thing to do. It would be great for the fans because we get to watch more basketball. 
Um, and I think it also de-incentivized teams from just resting all their players all the time. And, you know, like star players just rest for the last 10, 15 games of the season. They, they want to keep them fresh. They want to keep them moving in order to be competitive for this mini playoffs. And I love the idea of in the NCAA of this Cinderella team. Mm-hmm. You could have like the Charlotte Bobcats, God rest their soul, <laughs> winning the number one pick which I don't know if they ever got a number one pick. Uh, and yeah, we got to, we got to research that. Cause I'm pretty sure that they, they've either only gotten one in all their years of, of terrible play and, and they could become the Cinderella story just because they have like a really good run, you know? Oh, absolutely. So just to, I wanted to kind of go over the ideas that Eric and I came up with, but particularly the the format and how it would work. So the way that we were thinking about doing it is that the playoff would be the week after the season. So immediately after the season is done, whoever is in the uh, or whoever does not make it into the real playoffs. uh, So that'd be 14 teams would be eligible to play into the playoffs. So um, it would be, as, as Eric said, it's going to be a one game elimination bracket and we would have the top two teams, regardless of conference, would get a bye. And then everybody else, so the next 12 teams would play in to getting into the eight-team uh, eight bracket. And at that point, obviously, its um, highest record would, uh, or the, the best record would face the lowest record, and then you would have the second, um, second seed on the other side of the bracket um, working their way to the championship game. And then those 12 teams or the, sorry, the teams that uh, would go through the playoffs, we would do it by wins or, or uh, <clears throat> excuse me. So the top team would obviously get the number one pick. The team that's the runner up would get the number two pick. And then everybody after that would actually be by wins as well as looking at points scored. So say if uh, like, the Hawks and the Pelicans had the same amount of wins in the tournament, uh, but the Pelicans scored more than the Hawks and the Pelicans would get a higher draft pick. And uh, then we would also make sure that um, like the, the reason why I really love this, as you said, the, the Cinderella's, but then there's also teams like, you know, Portland, say if Damian Lillard's hurt for like half the year, they would have something to play for. They would have something to like work their way back into that. They're like, Hey, Dame's out for half the year, but he'll be back for the last couple of months for the season or the last month of the season. Let's just like get him in the, in the playing shape and then also try to get the number one pick. Who knows? It, there, I know there's a kid out of Memphis that everyone's really high on that he's this like six foot 10, six foot 11 center. Imagine them with someone that has great back to the basket scoring with him and CJ, you know? Yeah. Uh, or any team that's actually pretty good. But, and, and then, Again, because it's single elimination, who knows that the team that you might be matched up with just might have your number. You know, even yeah. if you're the number one seed and it's the eight seed, what if like the um, like the Hornets or whatever, they just have the Pelicans number or the the Hawks number, and it's just they they win it. Like anything could happen. Yeah, I actually like a slight modification to to your idea where the top couple of teams get like let's say picks one through three 
because we all know those are kind of the lottery, the, the, the most sacred picks. Mm-hmm. But let's say the Bobcats are just the worst team. They lose to every team. They lose even to the bottom bracket of teams. Give them a, still a chance to get into at least the four, five, six, or else they'll always be kind of falling into the last 15 bucket mm-hmm. and, and add the excitement of the lottery back in. So everyone else is, gets a lottery pick, right? So every, or everything else is a lottery, four through 15. And so that way we still preserve the one through three. Everyone's still fighting for that number one spot, but the rest just goes straight to a lottery. And I think that would, you know, we still preserve the lot because I actually love watching the lottery. I'm, I'm a bit of a gambler myself and <laughs> like being able to say, okay, my team's just so awful this year, but let's see if we get lucky and we get Zion Williamson, right? Or what, I guess they wouldn't get the number one, but they get the number four. So I, yeah. I would love a combination of both. Oh, definitely. I think that would be super interesting. I, I, the only reason I, I like the tournament idea is because like, I agree with you. There might be teams that are so bad that they keep on losing, but that's in my way of like incentivizing not to be bad. Like, yeah, you're <laughs> just you're, don't be bad. Play better. <laughs> yeah. Well, my thing is like, here, here's the thing. I think the Hornets overpaid for Terry Rozier, but like, I don't think Michael Jordan or, or anyone thinks that like, we're going to be a terrible team. You know, sure, yeah. they, in their minds, they're like, we're going to put out a good product and I think we can win more games than people think. Like, that's different than, like, at the end of, you know, or, or the midway point of the season, they're like, you know what, we're just going to trade all our assets because we we don't have anything to play for except for the number one pick. Like, I hate that. I hate I hate that, like, contenders all of a sudden get, like, the, the you know, well, I don't – I shouldn't say I hate it. I like it for the playoff runs, but at the same time, I hate that they just do fire sales and all of a sudden all these great players are on even better teams, you know, yeah, or, or they true. make, um, I, I like the idea that you want to have a, uh, put out a better product and you're constantly looking to make yourself better. And because of that, if, because of that, it is like a tournament that would give you a draft pick, um, it would also incentivize you to try to score as much many points as possible, uh, knowing that that would also affect your draft prospects because um, I think that's actually going to be an even better product for the fans. Like imagine you're watching, you know, single elimination games and you're getting into like the one thirties, one forties, like people are trying their hardest to get the picks because at the end of the day, the team is looking to, you know, get better and they're looking to get players that they believe will take them to the next level. And, um, it, at the end of the, at, at the end of it, I just want teams to like not tank, not do what Rick Carlisle did at the end of the, uh, 2017, 2018, uh, NBA season. Yeah, know? actually. So you make a great point because this actually eliminates the rebuild. There's no way to, I mean, not that there's no way you would never get rid of your best players just so you could get the, the, the highest amount of lotto balls. Yeah. Essentially you're still keeping your great players around because it still gives you the ability at the end of the season to do everything. So even if nothing clicks throughout the regular season, you still have a chance to be good as long as you're the best worst team. Yeah. Keep building towards that. I, I really like that. Yeah, because the rebuild the rebuild ideas work for a lot of teams, but man, it's grueling. I can't even imagine being a Sixers fan. Well, it's grueling, but 
the problem is with with rebuilding is you have to have you can't throw things together and expect them to work and i think that's what happens in rebuilding and uh, another reason why i like this tournament is that hey you know you you realize what's good about you you can realize what's bad and then you're trying to still build off of it and not just tear everything down because i get it no one wants to stay in the doldrums but like there's been plenty of teams that have gotten high draft picks and are still nowhere you know um yeah maybe the hawks are a little bit better with trey young and john collins and i actually think that they're going to take a next step but like they're they threw a lot of stuff against the wall for a long time and they're just getting back to, to being okay. Not even good. Yeah. You see all the, you see all the, the, the teams that did it well with the thunder, with the Sixers, but you forget about all the teams that did it poorly and are just kind of middling yeah. forever. Right. And that's, that's so as, as a fan of those teams, you'd just be so frustrated if they just, kept on doing the wrong things over and over and over again and Mm -hmm. taking draft picks that were like two or three years in maybe set for a breakout and then you trade them because you're like man this guy's not the future let's just get rid of him and hope that we get someone better next year right absolutely and i think this would force teams to actually invest in developing their players they're going to invest in uh finding the best coaches and people that are going to work with their team like people are into, you know, instant results, but like that only comes with like actually honing your skills. Uh, And I think a tournament like this would force people, A, I think there would be so much more excitement. Imagine at the end of the year, you know that there's going to be basketball being played, even if your team was not great this year. Yeah, Um, for sure. And you have a chance, like say if the Mavericks don't make it this year, they would be one of, I think they would still be one of the top teams in this, in this bracket. Imagine them getting the number one pick next year. Imagine them getting like the number four pick, even if they were like decent, you yeah. know, and who knows, maybe they're terrible and they get the 14th pick instead of like the 11th pick that they're supposed to get. You, you just don't know, but it adds that level of excitement that I think is so important to keep people interested. And like, yeah. I, I know that there's probably questions out there like, Oh, what are you going to do about trading picks? Like, I think, uh, you know, if a champion gets the top pick, then they can put an automatic protection on it and it converts to like three second round picks or like one first future first rounder and two second rounders. And I think if you want to trade your, your first round pick and then tank in the tournament, I think that's a risk that another team has to take on now. Like that's what I think this will will do. It's also going to de-incentivize people to be like, oh, like if I trade with the Hawks to get like a good player or like uh, or, or give them cap relief or whatever it is, um, you're going to think twice because they you're like they're not good enough to win this tournament. So I'm not going to get the the number one pick. Maybe I'll still get a number seven pick or number six pick, but I won't get the number one. I think it adds a little bit more of of weight to each trade then yeah um and then the last thing i want to say is and another thing that i think would be huge if they do this uh the the day after the season or the week after the season is that a would be in vegas which is a place that they've been wanting to have a foothold in the nba wanted a football hold into vegas and they were actually thinking about doing a team they just realized it wasn't tenable but having this be the place that everybody goes 
at the end of the season to see this tournament, I think it would be the perfect place to also do the NBA awards. That way we don't wait until after the playoffs and after the championship to find out who's the MVP, who's the, uh, you know, six man of the year coach of the year where we would eliminate having Dwayne Casey to accept a award for coach of the year after he was fired. Oh, that was terrible. Yeah. So uh, just imagine that this is like the nexus of the NBA for an entire week. The, the star players that are in the playoffs get to rest and relax a little bit. Um, or like they can stay, um, stay in their home thing or home, um, towns and like get ready for the playoffs. They just need whoever's in the, uh, award ceremony needs to come in the night before whatever it is. But like, I just imagine finding out that, you know, um, Giannis won the MVP and then he goes out and then gets wrecked by Kawhi, you know, or, uh, again, coach of the year, you like, you see the coach of the year instead of seeing them lose and then they win coach of the year. It's like you have a little bit more suspense with it. Yeah. And that actually brings us to a good spot. Like we actually wanted to end this episode off since the season is actually officially starting tomorrow. We wanted to give the first predictions that we have for uh, all of the big awards. Uh, that way we can track as the season progresses where we think this is going to uh, go and, and how our predictions are going to turn out. Yeah. All right, let's start at it. Uh, championship. Who you got, Josh? So I'm probably going to regret this, but I'm going to go out on a limb and actually say the Sixers. That's and a bold pick. <laughs> it is a bold pick. And the only reason I think the Sixers have a shot, and I don't, I, I think it's a coalescence of a lot of things is that I think the East, while it's, there's more parity in the East, I think they're the clear best team in the East now. Like it's, it's them and, and Milwaukee, but I actually think they have more talent and a better fit of talent than Milwaukee does. And, and that's saying something because I think Giannis actually has a great supporting cast, but he doesn't have that much talent. The Sixers have talent and they have a good bench. And I think one of the big things that Joel Embiid always had trouble with in the playoffs is playing against Al Horford. The fact that he now has Al Horford on his team, I think is going to make him even better. So I'm going to go with the Sixers only because I think they're going to do really well in the Eastern conference playoffs. And then they have the size and they have the speed to beat either the Lakers or Clippers in the finals. Yeah, I'm actually going to go with the Lakers. I, I mean, we got LeBron James. We got um, Anthony Davis. We got a really veteran cast. Uh, Kyle Kuzma, I heard, could come off the bench, and he's a, he's a fire torch. So I really like the Lakers this year. I, it's just so hard to bet against LeBron, and adding, adding AD is just going to be really, really big for the Lakers. Yeah, um, I, I mean, it's hard for me to actually go against you, but I will. <laughs> <laughs> All right, MVP, who you got, Josh? Okay, so I, I'm going out on a limb again, but I really believe it this year. And the reason why, I'll tell you, I'm going to go for Nikola Jokic. And the reason why, I'm, I don't think he's going to be the best player. I don't even think he's going to be the top three best players in the league. I think he is – two things are going to go for him. I think he's going to have big numbers. So I think he's going to go off for like 27, 12, and like six, or 27, 11, and five, something close to that. 
And I really do believe the Nuggets are actually going to have the best record in the league. And the reason why is that I think the Lakers, Clippers, and the Rockets are all going to have a hard time gelling in the beginning, and they're going to lose a couple of games that will take them out of the first seed. And I think the Nuggets are going to get the number one seed uh, because they have consistency. Um, they're, they're having more chemistry than everybody else. And um, I think a lot of their young players are having another year under their belt that they'll do even better. And because I think he's going to have monster numbers and the best record, I think he's going to get the MVP. Yeah, I got James Harden. Uh, kind of what you said, like the teams aren't going to gel that much, and James Harden is just going to be James Harden. He's going to score like 30, 40. I also just think it's his time. Last year, it was pretty tough to go against James Harden for MVP. A lot of people were saying he deserved it. I think a lot of people are listening and saying James Harden will be – has to be the MVP. He's just scoring in bunches. He's doing everything. He's actually playing better defense these days. Uh, I think it's just time for James Harden to get an MVP. And so I'm going to go with James Harden consistency. Uh, he's a consistent scorer, and he's always been a top three player for the past couple of years. Mm-hmm. I, I think he's got it this year. Uh, not to MIP. correct you. Yeah, well, not to correct you. James Harden won two years ago, though. Oh, that's right. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I keep forgetting about that. I think I kept thinking Steph Curry is going to um, get it over and over again. But uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I still think James Harden's got it just because like last year, I think he was kind of shafted a little bit. Yeah, I agree with you on that. I, I think he's going to have a monster year. I, I just don't know if he's going to have the record because I know MVPs, usually it's like the best player on the best team gets the gets the uh, the nod. Yeah. All right, we got a couple more. We got to riff these off. Most improved players, who you got? So uh, my most improved player, I am going to go with De'Aaron Fox. And the reason why is I think he uh, got better from his rookie to his sophomore year. I think he's going to take another leap. I think he's going to be at 20 points, six assists, four rebounds, uh, maybe a little bit less rebounds, but I still think he's going to put up great numbers. Um, I think he is going to, not make the all-star team, but vie for the all-star team. And it's going to, um, he's going to show off being one of the best young point guards in the league. I got Terry, scary Terry, Terry was here, um, mostly in honor of Halloween. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, I think he's going to lead a team, get to lead a team. Finally. I think he's hungry. I think he really wants to win, um, improve a lot. And I think he showed a lot of flashes in Boston. So I got scary Terry for MIP. Awesome. So who do you, uh, Eric, who do you got for uh, six main of the year? Yeah, I, I got Lou Williams. It's just hard to bet against Lou Williams. That guy can come off the bench and just light him up. And the Sixers team is going to be really good this year. And Lou Williams coming off the bench, scoring 15 to 20 every night. That's just going to be absurd. Yeah. So I, I agree with you. So this is the uh, one and only one that we agree on, but um uh, I think it's uh, Lou Williams as well. Same, same reasons. And I think uh, the Clippers are going to be so good that the fact is you can't ignore them. Like uh, I think other years he at least had like Eric Gordon to um, kind of balance against him. But I think next year it's pretty much going to be Lou Williams unless he gets uh, injured. Yeah. Uh, DPOY, I got Rudy Gobert. Uh, I love Rudy Gobert. I think he's going to be the anchor of that jazz team again. Um, just, uh, it's going to be also a really good team. And I just love the way that Gobert plays and protects the rim. And I think that's even more important in this day and age. Um, 
and I'm, uh, he's won it before. I think he's just going to get it again. Hey, man, the, the Stifle Tower. I'm, I'm with you uh, for the most part. I, I actually – it's hard to bet against him, but the only reason I'm going to it is because I think Joel Embiid is actually going to go to another level in defense. Partly because he is Alf Horford, I think he is going to stop uh, guarding the um, – He's going to stop guarding the other best uh, uh, post player, and Al Horford's going to do that, but that's going to mean his blocks are going to probably go up. I think he's going to actually uh, defend more and in the middle of the lane, and you're going to see a reinvigorated defensive Joel Embiid. I do have Anthony Davis as a close second because I think he's going to do something similar next to LeBron. And he also talked about um, LeBron or like bringing up LeBron back to an all def- uh, all defensive team. Uh, but I'm still going to give the slight, slight edge to Joel Embiid. Cool. Coach of the year. Yeah. It's pretty tough. It is really tough. And I think, I, th- I, I think it could be a lot of teams and I actually really like your pick too. And I was really close on picking him as well, but I'm going to go ahead and go with Mike Malone for the Denver Nuggets. And the reason why I think he could be coach of the year, or I, I, um, I have him as my pick for coach of the year is he is, I, again, I think the Nuggets are going to be the number one seed. I'm going to, I think that, that um, uh, Jokic is going to have an MVP season and they're going to give him a lot of credit for that because he's played, he's done a really good job of putting Jokic and Murray and Harris in great places to be as, as good as they are. So again, I'm going to go with Mike Malone. Yeah. I really like doc rivers. Uh, he's always been a kind of a coach of the year contender. Um, and he's going to have this really excellent team. I think coach of the year is one of those weird awards where for the most part, it's just a person with one of the top three records. So, you know, um, I'm going to go with Doc Rivers on this one just because he's got Kawhi and Paul. I, I don't know if that actually makes him the better coach, but, you know, like he's going to win a ton of games. So I, I, th- I think that he's, he's, he's going he's gonna to take it this year. Yeah, again, I had him as a close second just because I think um, he's going to go from eight seed to probably like a two or three seed with the Clippers. And so that that huge jump usually leads to a coach of the year. But – I mean, it's just hard because he's been very consistent for his entire career. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we got we got the NBA season starting on Tuesday. We'll see how these picks pan out. We'll come back in uh, eight months, since these are either be really, really terrible picks or they'll be brilliant picks. So we'll see how those work out. Um, and, yeah, we've come to the end of our show. Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate your passion. If you haven't followed us yet, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at thebr underscore podcast. We'll link it in the description. And as we post news, updates about our podcast, we'll post it on those social accounts. So please like, share, subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, this is Josh and Eric signing off. Peace.